0: Hello and welcome back to the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Kendall. On this show, we take an engineering approach and speak to the experts about the insights into weight loss, fasting and nutrition, as well as real-life people about their journey of nutritional optimization. Hello, Cynthia. Great to chat. Thank you for coming on to to, um, have a chat. I really enjoyed our podcast uh, on your podcast and um, we've connected and um, yeah, everybody wants to know about fasting for women. So you've uh, literally written a book on it, which is yet to be released, but uh,
1: it'd
0: be great to get your thoughts and those insights. So um, just as a backstory, how did you become passionate about intermittent fasting? And um, how did you get into this?
2: Well, it's a great question. And and thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I think it really stemmed from the end of one, you know, so many of Mm. us try a strategy out on ourselves. And then we're like, hmm, this might actually be applicable to more than just me. And so I'm a middle-aged woman. I felt like I kind of got stuck in my early 40s. I'd never struggled with my weight, never struggled with energy, never struggled with, um, you know, food cravings or anything. And it seemingly overnight, it crept over me. And I was like, okay, what I'm doing is not working. So let's try something different. So it really was that uh, kind of inspirational. It was like, okay, let me try something different. And almost instantaneously, I felt So much better because what's the conventional wisdom we share with Mm. patients is that you need to eat meals frequently you need to have snacks etc and yet that wasn't working for me and for most of my most if not all of my patients so started with me and then i started to realize that maybe this might be a strategy that would be effective for a lot of the females that were coming to work with me by that point i had left clinical medicine uh, in 2016, because I felt compelled to focus on things other than writing prescriptions. And so really focused on food uh, and from there stemmed group programs and one-on-one work with clients. And, uh, it, and and then it grew to being blogging about it, talking about it on social media, and then ultimately uh, doing a couple TED Talks. And uh, I think the funny story is obviously when you do a Ted talk, you can't do a second Ted talk on the same topic. And I had a very short turnaround time. I had to make a decision. Did I want to do a second? And if so wow. what going to talk about, and I remember saying to my husband, what do I know a lot about? And he was like, oh, intermittent fasting. And I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about intermittent fasting. And that was as organic as it could have been. And wow. the organizers asked me to do a female slanted talk on intermittent yeah. fasting. So I did that to oblige them. They said, you know, we have a lot of individuals that really want a women's health focused speaker. Mm. And so that began that journey down that rabbit hole, not realizing that talk would be what most people when they think about, you know, me or my business, that's now what they associate me with. And I think that the biggest challenge for women, especially uh, de- really dependent on what stage of life they're in. Are they at their mm. fertile years? Are they in perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause? Or are they in menopause? We all have to look at intermittent fasting from a different lens mm. um, in order to honor the wonderful bioindividuality we have as this gender. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's really where it started from. It was that simple. But inspired action with regard to myself, really wanting to... Um, you know, just do something different. I just felt like if, if the normal thing that I'm doing, because I was one of those people who went to the gym and I'd have a protein shake and route to the gym and I have protein shake after. And I was having, you know, mini meals if I was in clinic and then maybe having a protein bar in between patients if I was in the hospital, because sometimes you didn't get the opportunity to stop. Mm. And uh, I thought, you know, this is not working anymore. This is not serving Mm. me. I don't buy into the fact that we have to accept weight gain as a normal function of aging. I just kept hearing Mm. that from people over and over and over again. And that frankly made me angry. (laughs) I was like, I don't want that to be the case.
0: (sighs) I want to find another way, a better way that Uh, works for me.
2: Exactly. And so now Mm. I, I intellectually can explain how that happens for a lot of people Mm. beyond just eating too much and not exercising and not getting a quality sleep. There's a lot of things that change in our bodies as we get older, which mm. stink, but, uh, you know, there's ways around it. So
0: you, can, that started. you can work with it. Yeah, it's funny. Um, like Some of my now best friends, weirdly, are um, older ladies who have had success with data-driven fasting in the masterclass. And some of the people who have had the most amazing success are that older female demographic um who have done amazingly well but then at the same time you hear all these stories of you know it's harder post-menopause to lose weight and um fasting is more difficult and dave asprey's come out and said i think a lot of people have caught the idea that you know you shouldn't fast for too long as a female and yeah so where are the limits of Fasting for women—what makes women different? Mm-hmm. Um, why is it harder to fast to lose weight as you get older, as, particularly as a female?
2: Yeah, there's a there's big a
0: question, I know. But no,
2: yeah, no, no, no. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So I think a lot of it's dependent on where we are chronologically. And so, if you're under the age of 35, one of the things that makes you very unique is that we have the ability to uh, procreate and carry life. And so. Mm our bodies are particularly attuned to stressors. And we think about fasting as a a great example of a hermetic stress along with things Mm -hmm. like high intensity interval training and cold exposure. And too much of any one thing can tell our body we're in a period of time where we're in danger. And sometimes you can't differentiate fasting too long from cold Mm -hmm. exposure, from famine, I mean, all those things. And so I like to remind people that when we're Looking at women in their peak fertile years, their bodies are much more sensitive to nutrient depletion. They're much more sensitive to over fasting, and so that's that's the first kind of crux that I see. Is if you're under the age of 35, you have to fast differently than a, than a middle-aged woman. And and I'm going to say perimenopause. You know, 35, depending on where you fall, re- women's you know estradiol and testosterone and progesterone really start to change and flux um, as they get closer to 40. And so when women are in their 40s, I remind them that all the lifestyle pieces that in your 20s and 30s, you're invincible. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how little you sleep, it's less of an issue in terms of your stress management, your nutrition, you you just become much more inflamed, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. that maybe you you did fine with in your 20s and 30s, you get into your 40s and 50s. And I'm thinking about the big ones like gluten and grains and dairy as just one example. There's Mm -hmm. many others. Um, your body's just much more susceptible to those things. So, if you are adding in intermittent fasting in your perimenopause or early menopause years and you can't sleep through the night, again, we talk about this hermetic stress. It's too much for our body. Yeah. Our bodies are just not as resilient. And yes, that stinks. I don't like saying to anyone, my body is less resilient in my 40s than it was in my 20s and 30s, but that's a fact. And a lot of yeah. that hormonally mediated. And so, you know, I think about quality of your stress management, and yes, you cannot be doing CrossFit five, six days a week in your 40s and 50s and beyond. You have to be lifting weights in order to counteract some of the changes that go on in the bodies. Um, You need to get that high quality sleep, and if you're waking up multiple times a night, don't add intermittent fasting, and this is something I've really been very vocal about that if you can't get the sleep dialed in don't add in another stressor yeah, the nutrition yeah. piece is and, and you I'm sure you see this uh, yeah. uh, you know we're a culture that is very kind of hedonistic, very pleasure oriented and eating for pleasure is different from eating for nutrition or for fuel. and so mm. um, I think a lot of people it's differentiating you know and you talk about this quite a bit, which I love about your work what's your intrinsic hunger? What does that feel like? What is our mm. blood sugar doing when that happens? Because we've mm. got so disconnected, we kind of wake up and think it's 8 a.m. It's time to eat breakfast. It's 12 o'clock. It's time to eat lunch. It's six o'clock at night. It's time to eat dinner. Oh, I got to have a snack before I go to bed because I want to stoke my metabolism. Mm. But back to you know, the middle age piece, I think that perimenopause is a very unique time. I remind women that I think of perimenopause as the years that are reminding us how well we're taking care of ourselves so if you are managing your sleep and managing your stress and eating high quality nutrient-dense foods and not over exercising um and you know you're you have healthy relationships whether it's with the opposite sex or your loved ones and you are spiritually and occupationally fulfilled you're going to navigate heading into menopause a whole lot easier and menopause is 12 months without a menstrual cycle Mm-hmm. and then i think of menopausal women in many ways as more akin to men because we don't have as much hormonal fluctuation yep. as cycling women do women who are still getting their menstrual cycle and so when i think about menopausal women if they can get everything right meaning if they can dial in on the lifestyle things that i've just alluded to i think they can have incredible success with intermittent mm-hmm. fasting but it requires getting really honest with yourself And, you know, the one thing that I see, and this is not a criticism of my traditional Western medicine trained peers, but the mindset with um, most methodologies with hormone replacement, whether it's for men going through andropause, and yes, men go through andropause, women go through menopause. uh, The mindset is just replace the hormones that will fix the problems. No, it doesn't. You really have to do the work. And then If you've done all the work and everything's fallen into place and you still need hormonal therapy, there's no shame in that. So I think to your, to your initial question, what makes us unique are these cycling hormones until we go through menopause. And, you know, one thing I'm also pretty outspoken about is that um, women can cycle, you know, they can cycle. Women obviously cycle till they no longer cycle. But when they are a week prior to their period, I generally ask them to stop fasting that that's a time mm-hmm. that you know women will say I just don't have the ability to do long fast the week before my period. My cravings are through the roof. I just don't mm-hmm. feel good. And so I oftentimes will encourage women not to fast five to seven days prior to their cycle. And with that caveat, there are three other weeks out of the month where most women can fast or if you're really young, mm-hmm. like if you're 25, 30, 35 a couple of days a week, I don't think necessarily everyone needs to do these really long fasts. It mm-hmm. might be people are really working on digestive rest or I have some younger women that are in their early 30s and what we agree to is they fast three or four days a week they monitor their menstrual cycle they monitor their energy you know they're really kind of clued in and I tell them all the time that our menstrual cycle is a barometer Mm. it changes goes away and you're not pregnant uh, more than a cycle or two it's a sign that your body may in fact perceive that fasting is too much stress so just really being honest. And I think, unfortunately, uh, because women are women, there's not as much research done on women. There's a lot of research done on rodent models and, uh, <laughs> and obese menopausal women. And then there's a lot of, and I, I know we've kind of talked about this in Facebook groups, but, and in between there's a lot of conjecture, like there's a lot of assumption like, oh, well, if it's if uh, fasting overtaxes a mouse, then, it, then we're going to extrapolate the same thing happens to to females, and I'm like, well, our reproductive systems are very different. We're both mammals, correct? We may both have yeah, the female gender, but uh, you know, you can't you can't extrapolate um, the stress that would be that would be impacted upon a rodent model per se. Mm-hmm and say that this is applicable to all women that are getting mm. the menstrual cycles. So I'm curious if that, that's been, you know, have, have you been in your groups, because now you have these really big groups, are <laughs> seeing that women seem to feel a little bit more stuck with fasting than men?
0: Yes and no. I suppose I see a lot of people who fail with the extended multi-day mm-hmm. OMAD, ADF, they sort of come in and go, I stalled out, and it seems that because the biology is so protective of being able to procreate Mm -hmm. if you push it too hard like you say if you push that hormetic stress off the cliff the body goes whoa i can't do this anymore i've got to protect enough body fat so that we can still procreate so there seems to be a a balance point but as you say if you get the nutrition piece dialed in you can then move the other pieces It's, it's been amazing like we've spent five years trying to tell people how to eat better and dial in the nutrition but when we started talking about fasting everybody came running and they want to learn how to not eat but maybe still eat what they were eating before it's much harder to change what you do eat than uh you know just not eating but it never seems to work when you don't prioritize what you do eat when you do eat and if you don't get that dialed in the the cravings and the hunger and the rebound is just you know it leads to failure and disappointment and this rebound binge restrict binge restrict cycle which I think is a complete setup for I don't know lots of bad things so it's nice when people just find that balance with data-driven fasting to balance that intermittent fasting so um my question back to you is like what what do you find you i know you don't recommend the extended fast you know adf or even omad for most people what do you see when people push it too long too hard yeah
2: that's a great question um you know some of the things that i see i and this is always like the check-in point when i'm working with women how's your energy how's your sleep those are the two like crux is if you're sleep styled in and you have plenty of energy it's great so the opposite would be the case um i have got a woman who keeps dming me on instagram and and she keeps telling me the same story and i said you you can't fast that long if you're if you Mm -hmm. get 18 and you're great and then you push it to 20 and you can't sleep what does that tell you your body's saying it's Mm too much so i would say it starts with insomnia it starts with worsening you know waking up at night uh, oftentimes when I see people doing those long fasts, they're really, they're thinking if a little bit of fasting is good, then a lot of fasting is yeah. better. I just remind them, yeah. I'm like, our bodies don't work that way.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, it really is a fine tune. It's like a very, it's a very delicate dance trying to figure that out. So I'd say first and foremost, sleep disturbances, um, obviously energy issues. If people are getting dizzy, if they're lightheaded, if they're fatigued, Um, if they try to go do a workout and they feel like they're, you know, they feel almost like they've got a virus Mm. going on. They just don't have the energy to get through a workout. I'm like, you need to check in with yourself. And
0: and you need to eat something.
2: (laughs) Or, you know, there was someone the other day, one of my groups who were having a private call and she was, again, it was that same type of mentality. Well, I'm just going to push through it. And I said, I only fasted 14 hours yesterday because I did a leg workout and I was really, really, really hungry. And I said, Mm. Okay, I am going to eat. I am going to break my fast. Yeah.
0: She was shocked. Your body needs food. It needs fuel. Needs to recover. But it's amazing when, like, people who have been fasting. Like, I talked to Karen, who was, you know, under the supervision of gurus, um, like fasting for twenty-eight days and just stalled out and wasn't losing weight and, like, I say, low energy. But once they start dialing in what they eat, mm-hmm. everything just once they get the new, the body gets the nutrients it needs, it likes, It's like it says. There's no famine. There's no emergency. There's no, you know, food's good here. I don't need to hold all this emergency fat. I can let it go, and it just falls into place a whole lot better. So that that's a really wonderful thing that we keep on keep on seeing as people. Then they dial in using their blood sugars, what they eat, and when they eat. And once they get that balance right, a lot of things fall into place. Even for the older women and who have struggled for a long time with that extended fasting mentality
2: well and i think it's we really do our patients a disservice if we are still stuck in that kind of old mentality that it's calories in calories out which i know completely gets you um hot under the collars it does myself because i said you're you're completely negating another aspect all of this but you can appreciate why patients will struggle because it's very new for them to have a concept where they are like, I only eat when I'm hungry, and when I get hungry, I check my blood sugar, and if I know my blood sugar is within this healthy range, then I break my fast. But if it's 110, I still have fuel to burn, and so that whole kind of concept yeah. I think is so empowering for people. You know, it was interesting. There was a uh, well-known vegan cardiologist on Twitter who was poo-pooing Peter Atia. And his uh, supportive continuous glucose monitors. And so I normally am not like this on social media, but I was like, you know, the I get tired of the arrogance that I see. And I'm, and I'm not gonna just say it's physicians, I'm gonna just say healthcare providers that aren't willing to entertain the possibility that having a little bit of biohacking assistance, whether it's a glucometer mm-hmm. or CVM, can help empower your patients to say, maybe, you know, for that 55 year old woman who's never entertained the possibility that, you know, she has. At her disposal, the ability to really mitigate what's going on. You know, let's fuel your body mm. with you know high quality protein and healthy fats and high mm. quality carbohydrates, and let's find out when you run out of fuel. Like literally, when your mm. body's run out of gas, that's when you fill up the tank. Not you know mm. reflexively, this is what I want to do. But you know, you, you touched on one thing that I want to make sure I, I touch yeah. on as well because the OMAD piece. Uh, There are a lot of women that want to do OMAD all the time. They're like, "I'm only hungry for one meal, and I really I want to do OMAD." And I said, "OMAD is fine if you are away on vacation. Maybe you overindulged. You're going to have one meal, and you're going to get back on track the following day. But sustained OMAD for women very hard for people to get enough macros in during that. Mm. And and I know um, you know when I was interviewing Ted, and I know you interviewed Ted Naiman as well, probably a couple times. um, and he's absolutely brilliant. And so we were having a sidebar conversation. And I was saying, you know, the, the whole concept of prolonged fast for thinner people mm. who are maybe body composition-wise, almost at their goal or at their goal. Um, I, I don't know the the return, there's like a, a law of diminishing returns at that moment. Mm. Like really trying to decide how much more are you gonna squeeze out of that dish rag? Like how mm. much more are you gonna get out of that? Is it really worth putting your body through that extra stress? And so I know even um, Maria Emmerich and I had a conversation about this mm. as well, but like not going overboard with really long fasts. I know people think, oh, if a little bit of autophagy is good, then a whole lot more is better. And so always- and I'll get
0: all that autophagy in seven days because I'm going to fast longer for harder and longer for harder. Mm-hmm. And then they just, it's really hard to control what you eat at the end of that That's fast. You're not funny. going give me the chicken breast and egg white and protein powder. Are going I want that fat bomb i want the donut i want you know yeah. i want the cream and the peanut butter and all the energy dense foods and that's the problem we see is you, it's just hard to get enough protein enough nutrients in when you refeed to to maintain a lean ma- muscle yeah. mass which is so like you mentioned before incredibly important to metabolic health as especially as you age
2: yeah well it's that whole slippery slope of osteopenia sarcopenia all these fun things that happen if we aren't working very diligently Mm. to reverse them and and i think that this is another aspect of what differentiates men from women is that we tend to have more um, body fat on our bodies. Again, it's a byproduct of procreation and uh, being able to conceive and carry a child. Mm. We are much more sensitive to the changes that occur in skeletal muscle, and and muscles mm. are the organ of longevity. Mm. Maintain as much lean muscle yeah. as possible. And uh, you know, Gabrielle Lyon always talks about the yeah. muscle being glucose reservoirs yeah. or food. So I remind people, I'm like, you want to do everything you can. Like, don't skip. Yeah you know, you don't want to skip a a leg day, you don't want to skip a body weight exercise day, you want to maintain as much lean muscle, because I see a lot of women, um, you know, I can see some thinner women in their 50s, 60s and beyond, and they look so their muscles almost like sinewy, they're, they're very, they look very estrogen deficient, and frail. And I I think so many of us don't want to end up looking that way. So how do you have this happy medium and a lot of it uh, focuses on maintaining as much lean muscle mass as you can. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, there's a crazy amount of confusion out there. Of you know, avoiding protein and mTOR and IGF one, and it just gets a a myriad of you know, messed up thoughts. That mm-hmm. here I am fasting, losing lean muscle mass, refeeding with high fat keto foods when I refeed, and and people just lose their their metabolic reservoir of muscle that will enable them to burn the energy they eat so they have to keep on cutting down further and further and further and basically wasting away and then once you get to that point you're frail, you're old, you've you know lost your muscle mass it's just such a risky point to get to that you're going to fall over, break a hip and nothing good happens after that point. I think uh, Peter Atia said that 50% of people who break a hip never leave the hospital system yeah, it's- afterwards. It's just a crazy risk of being um, old and frail and you have to make that investment from your 30s 40s 50s so when you get to 70 80 you can keep living till 90 and being independent and mm-hmm. so you know, anytime i see old people in the nursing home it's just like that once they lose their independence it's it's scary it's it's not a life you want to live if you yeah. have to you can't toilet you can't eat yeah. it's just that but if you sense. can live it i love um tommy wood talks about the the, the grandmother hypothesis that if you can invest in your community and you're giving back to your community for as long as you can, your body says, I'm needed here. I, I need to live longer. I need to regenerate. But if you're not able to contribute to the society around you, then your body says, okay, time to shut down. I'm wasting resources effectively. So that's, you know, I just want to be <laughs> involved and, yeah and appreciated by as many people as I can for as long as I can, because I know that'll make my body want to live for a long time.
2: Well, and it's interesting because, you know, my my whole background as an NP is in cardiology. So I was able to see people from their 20s all the way up to, you know, we even had patients in their 90s and, you know, early 100s. And the patients that fared the best, you know, in middle age and beyond were the ones that still felt vital and needed, much to your point Mm -hmm. Mm. I used to love seeing, you know, very active people in their seventies, eighties and nineties, the ones who still volunteered at Mm. center or the hospital. Mm. They loved it. They said, you know, I take my volunteer job as seriously as I did, you know, job I got paid for years ago. And, and, you know, much to your point about maintaining your ability, you know, all the body mechanic works, you know, being able to get off the toilet, being able to, um push and pull things, you know, go to the grocery store. There's nothing worse. I, I have a parent who retired early from the federal government and my dad went from being super vital and smart to mm. I watched him just really cognitively decline because he needed that stimulation. He didn't realize mm. I think he thought the idea of an early <sighs> would sound grand because he could try golf so
0: like every day.
2: day. Right. But uh, you know, looking at how frail my father is compared to my mom, who's super active just really reinforces why, you know, we want to maintain. And and something interesting that a a colleague of mine, GYN, mentioned to me yesterday. So we're learning more and more and more about these synthetic hormones that women are Mm -hmm. given, oftentimes from their teenage years up until when they want to get pregnant in their 30s. And so they have this loss of, so when you're on oral contraceptives, you have this loss of estrogen um, and estrogen signaling in the brain and, and how you lose out on opportunities to build bone uh yeah. so you have this this right. loss of bone building in our peak bone building years which are our 20s and 30s and so we're having this conversation i said how many women do we know including ourselves that were on oral contraceptives for years and years and years and then maybe you go off contraceptives you have a couple pregnancies and you decide you're done having babies and then you know you move on to the next phase and you think like i missed out on all that bone building time yeah. didn't realize it so i I think that certainly younger generations are going to benefit from like my generation that's starting to question a lot of kind of the mindset of let's prevent pregnancy and then we'll worry about the sequelae that comes from that um you know down the road there's so many more options for women now which i think is Mm. great but just in tying into that muscle and bone loss piece Mm. um certainly very important that we are doing we're as proactive as possible about maintaining that And, and what's interesting is someone asked me the other day about, is there any correlation between fasting and bone loss? Hmm. So, you know, I've done a little bit of research and I think a lot of it can play into menopausal women with low estradiol and low insulin related to um, fasting that could potentially, but you start to look at all the other factors. And I'm sure even as an engineer, you kind of dive Hmm. into research. I think there's a lot of factors that can impact that. But if you're someone that's been you know borderline eating disorder your entire life very Mm -hmm. focused on the weight piece probably not building much bone in your 20s and 30s and then getting into um you know perimenopause and menopause and with this loss ultimately of estradiol or estrogen Mm -hmm. signaling Um, And loss of progesterone that can definitely impact osteoblasts and osteoclast activity in the bones themselves. So it's like diving down a rabbit hole of goodness. I always say there's, you know, someone will ask a question and then, you know, I'll come out a day later and I'm like, wow, that was cool
0: that's fascinating yeah calcium is important but definitely protein is also incredibly important along with all the other nutrients to building healthy bones and being able to resistance train you to put those stresses on your muscles and your bones to make sure that they're strong so you've just got i see myself i'm 45 and you know what i hold now is my investment for the future till i'm i'm not going to be a dave asprey and say i'm going to live to 120 but (laughs) um
2: Every time I say that, I'm like, "That's a little crazy, Dave." I don't. I I think after you know working with a large patient population, I think 80. If I get to 85, that's good. Like 85 (laughs) appeared to be a pretty good age. Like I felt like people still had a good quality of life, and Mm. you know it's the law of diminishing returns after that. But I don't think I want to be that when I die.
0: Yeah, de- de- it's definitely all about health span rather than lifespan. And if, but if you've got your health dialed in early, you've got a better chance of having a better lifespan and health span. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm obviously not female, but I've I've got a a wife who's hooked up to a continuous glucose monitor, and now a continuous. You know, I can see her insulin pump mm-hmm. daily and monthly, and I monitor that every every three days i'll update her basal profile based on what it's been doing for the last week and, and months and i find it completely fascinating and um you know what i noticed was that leading up to that time of the month when the cravings happen and emotions go a little bit askew sometimes and you know the, the insulin levels rise the insulin requirements rise the blood sugars rise and then afterwards they drop again sometimes they, they plummet maybe not so much as she's getting um to to the same age as me um but yeah j- just maybe unpack what's happening there And in, in data-driven fasting we definitely guide people during that premenstrual period to be able to understand that yeah you're, you're elevated your blood sugars are going to be elevated your insulin is going to be elevated during that period your cravings are going to be a little bit weird, and maybe that's okay, and how do people understand that um, without diving too deep down the rabbit hole? It's a, it's a fascinating area, but uh, yeah. and unfortunately, fairly limited understanding.
2: Oh, I'm I'm sure. I'm sure that's not the case, but yes. So, you know, the the first day of our menstrual cycle is, you know, day one, and we know that estrogen predominates in the first half of the menstrual cycle itself. So, let's just say the cycle itself is 28 days, just for argument's sake. So, days one through 14 really predominant estrogen predominates. This is oftentimes when people feel their best. Um, They may bleed for the first four or five days of that cycle, and then it stops. Um, really leading up to ovulation. And this is when fasting, this is when people oftentimes can fast a little longer, mm. they may not have as many cravings, they may not feel quite as bloated, and it's all working up to ovulation. And ovulation, mm. is obviously, you know, the body is preparing itself for the release of an egg, you know, in the best case, mm. scenario, you release the, de- the egg somewhere between day 14, 15, 16, depending on the individual. Mm. Some people are aware when this happens. And during the second half of our menstrual cycle, we have this other hormone, progesterone. And progesterone is, uh, you know, we always call it the chill out hormone. It's the hormone that's designed to uh, make us more relaxed. It may make us a little bit bloated. It may make us a little bit constipated. Uh, and we know that the five to seven days preceding when our menstrual cycle should occur. This is when I will say to people that you will notice there are some insulin changes. If you're wearing mm. continuous glucose monitor, you notice your, your numbers bump up a little bit. You have this increased degree of insulin sensitivity and specificity. It's mm. when I will oftentimes suggest to people, if you're going low carb, this might be the time to have a, a slightly larger portion. This mm. might be what helps satisfy you. You know, women will say they crave magnesium or they crave dark chocolate with a really good mm. magnesium. I know with your chronometer, you're very... Yeah you know, focused in on the nutrients. And so this is oftentimes when I'll see, you know, I'll say maybe a little bit, maybe a slightly larger portion of sweet potato or squash. If you tolerate Mm. grains, really kind of diving into that. And it's, it's like 150 more calories a day. We're not talking about Mm. a a third meal or a fourth meal. That's really not what we're talking about. We can also see some sleep disturbances. Uh, Sometimes people will see like looser bowels. They may have diarrhea or looser stools. And so, you know, really kind of leading up until, you know, if there is not a um, an egg that's been fertilized, your bodies kind of have this peak of progesterone. And then as progesterone mm-hmm. starts to fall, you're getting closer and closer to when menstruation begins. And so what I oftentimes find, and this has been my anecdotal evidence of working with thousands of women, women feel pretty good for the first 14 days of their cycle you know, after ovulation still probably, so the first three weeks they're feeling pretty good. They can usually push the envelope if they're mm-hmm. um, not new to intermittent fasting, they can push the envelope on hours and strategies, you know, if they want to do a bone broth fast, if they're, you know, looking to do um, different types of fasting. And, and I'm sure that you probably talk about
1: mm-hmm. a lot
2: of the different types of fasting that's available beyond just water or green tea or black coffee. Mm-hmm. And so being able to push that a little bit more, I do find that, Um, you know, one of the questions that I get oftentimes is, should I be eating foods that are helping my body prepare itself for ovulation? Should I be eating foods that are um, helping to package up extra estrogen in the body? There's always these concerns that we've got too much extra circulating hormones. And I oftentimes remind people like, let's not just guess, let's test. But as an example, um, in the first 14 days, this is a time when you can have a lot of, um, you know, cruciferous vegetables. So we're talking about like broccoli Mm -hmm. and cauliflower and kale if you tolerate, you know, uh, kind of an oxalate sensitive, um, if you're not an oxalate sensitive individual, because we know that this can help package up excess estrogen that can be excreted in our stool. Um, Definitely something to think about. There aren't any per se progesterone supportive foods that I've been able to find. I mean, I haven't seen any research to suggest this, whereas we definitely have some foods that we know that can be very um, supportive of estrogen in the first half of the menstrual cycle. So second half of the menstrual cycle, if your egg is not fertilized, your body's preparing for, um, you know, shedding the, the, uh, mm. lining and then beginning a new cycle. And and what I find is, um, most people that are eating a fairly nutrient dense diet, um, mm. not, uh, eating 24 seven, um, and, uh, you know, maybe you're really just doing 12 or 13 hours fast. It's really just a digestive rest. Those few days mm. before your cycle, they have less PMS. They have less food cravings, mm. they sleep better. They have more energy. And so mm. I don't think it's any, any surprise that when we're eating more nutrient dense foods and we're eating less often that our body mm. can actually do the things it's designed to do in a way that makes it much more amenable to, um, ensuring that our that we feel good. I mean, I mm-hmm. think we've kind of gotten conditioned that everyone has terrible premenstrual syndrome, and that we're just going to, uh, you know, the week preceding our cycle, we're just going to kind of throw all of our hard work away and say, I'm going to indulge every salty, sweet, junkified food craving that I have, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to get back on track when my period starts, when I feel a whole lot better. And so. Um, that's kind of a very, very basic. I don't know if you want me to dive deeper into the physiology that goes on or if that's more than what you were kind of. Yeah,
0: that, for. No, no, that might be more of a, a deep dive for another time. But um <laughs> so, so why does weight, that's one thing people notice is that weight increases in that premenstrual phase. Why do people it's hold on to weight them. more and how do they manage that? How do they yeah. conceptualize that? I suppose they just have to say that does happen and after when the period comes my blood sugars will drop my insulin will drop and and you'll flush water from the system and the weight will drop and you don't get too hung up on that in that premenstrual phase
2: yeah well I, i usually recommend not weighing yourself every single day and recognizing that this is a byproduct of hormonal fluctuations our weight may fluctuate by two to three pounds day to day It could be from um, the byproduct of progesterone, which is a hormone in the body that will cause us to retain some fluid, not so that we feel miserably uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but that alone can be a byproduct. You know, certainly if we're dehydrated, if we're not having a bowel movement every day. I mean, I have had women that do not have bowel movements every day. and When we get them going every single day, all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, I had you know, two or three days worth of poop sitting in my bowel, and that could have definitely been contributing. So I just like to remind people that fluid retention can absolutely mm. cause you to. Hold. I mean, I always feel bloated right before my period. I mean, that mm. is a given, and that's how I think most people feel. But it's it's usually a byproduct of progesterone's influences, and progesterone is designed to be this mellow hormone. It's designed mm. to, um, you know, help nourish the body. In the event that we uh, have an egg that is um, that is fertilized and mm-hmm. uh, you know the the growing potential growing endometrium, so I just remind people that we know there's this one week out of our cycle that we are probably going to feel a little bit of bloat. We may feel it just around our abdomens. We may feel like our bowels slow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being really diligent about hydration, having uh, two green salads a day, you know crushing mm. up flaxseed and chia seeds and putting them in a smoothie. Uh, I'm a huge fan of gallbladder supportive foods. So things yep. like beets, carrots, artichokes uh, can all help with um, you know keeping the bile. And this is something tangential, but I find that coming out of the non-fat, low fat years, um, mm. people have a lot of viscous bile. And so bile is a substance that helps us break down and emulsify fat. And so mm. if someone starts going higher fat in their intake or eating, consuming more fats and their digestion slows down. Oftentimes, like what happens around a woman's menstrual cycle, I just remind them that we want to be really diligent about doing a lot of bile supportive properties. And I always say starting with food, So shaved beets is a great, a great thing. In fact, I eat beets every single day because they're just uh-huh. so good for detoxification in our gallbladders. But Also adding in things like, um, it doesn't taste good, but aloe vera juice, like even a small amount of people are struggling with constipation around their cycle, you can do like a quarter cup. It doesn't taste great, but it's very effective. Got all sorts of things. But usually fresh ground flax and chia seeds together, like a tablespoon or a teaspoon of each, um, can really get things moving along, like in a very benign way or eating green salads to kind of keep things moving forward. But the hydration, the bile supportive foods, Uh, making sure you're getting plenty of physical activity. If you're a couch potato and you're dehydrated, you're not going to be feeling great around your cycle. PMS is going to be
0: bad. So 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 you're sort of saying if you're eating well, if you're active, if you're drinking enough water, you're not going to have as excessive PMS symptoms that are going to drive you to crave those bad foods that – often derail the whole process.
2: And I think it's also critically important that if you know you have a trigger food, don't keep it in your house. Um, You know, I have teenage boys. It'll be
0: gone during that week.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I have teenage boys and and certainly for them, um, there are foods in the house I don't eat at all. And I just don't, I don't like the way I feel when I eat them. So I don't eat them at all. It's not even a temptation, but mm. I think that if there are foods, like if you're kryptonite or cookies, don't buy cookies, don't buy cookie mix. Don't buy co- the stuff for cookies. Just don't even tempt yourself, but find, you know, find an alternative. I think mm. you know, dark chocolate for a lot of people, if you get really high qu- quality, dark chocolate, you know, you'll get that magnesium fix and mm. you're not going to derail your diet, but if mm. you feel like you can't control yourself. You know, if you have that, Um, I think it's Glenn Livingston calls it Lizzie. You know, if the lizard Mm. brain goes overboard or the pig, I think your first is the pig, call it Lizzie. But you get that overdrive. It's like, let's make sure that you're structuring your meals so that you've got protein and healthy fats so that you're not feeling like you're not satiated. Because the satiety piece, which I know you talk a lot about, Mm. is critically important. I think not enough healthcare professionals talk about that with their patients. And it's like, you're setting yourself up for um, failure. If you're just focusing on like, I have to have fat bombs. I'm like, no, I'd actually rather that you have uh, a scoop of nut butter and have that with, you know, it, that's what you want. If that's, what's going to help you at the end of a meal, you have a scoop of nut butter and that's going to or coconut butter or a um, mm. scoop of NCT oil. And that's going to keep you satisfied. And obviously not destroying your macros but Mm. keeping you satiated at the end of a meal so you're not looking for other stuff to fill yourself up can really be very
0: helpful yeah but you've got to prioritize good food first and lead with that and then sort of Mm. you know when you look at the um, protein leverage hypothesis basically all animals chase protein and nutrients first and then top up with the Energy that they need to get through the day, and I think that's a really wise way to approach it. Um, yeah. So uh, you're a big fan of protein and Gabriel Lyon and, and building muscle. And so, what do you do in terms of eating to maximize your health, your metabolic health, your strength to uh, for, for future aging?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, I get really good quality sleep, so I think everything starts with sleep because you get right. these. As I'm sure you probably talk about um, you know, these spikes of human growth hormone, um, mm. right? So you don't want to lose out on that. So sleep first, and then uh, you know you got to put enough um, strain on your muscles to make them grow. So you can't. I couldn't like go to the gym and be lifting 10 pounds. I mean that's not going to do it. So I really endeavor to push myself and to to do leg like, day like twice a week. Um, you know, and then I'll break out two other days as I can do them, but. Yes, the protein thing for me is really critical. My family thinks I'm just a gigantic dork because a lot of what I do is I'll have a meal focused around a piece of meat. Um, I'm a huge fan of bison. I really wow. eat quite a bit of beef. Um, I recently tried elk, which I really enjoyed.
0: Cool. Um, I would a say... Lot of the game, meats tend to be leaner and, and higher protein, which is a, a real good hack. We have kangaroo here, so I try to prioritize that. And then later in the day, I'm craving the the fats and carbs, but I know at, at least I've got the protein in first.
2: Yep. So um, trying to make sure that we get varied amounts of protein. I mean, I used to be a big fish person, but I have to be completely honest, the more I read about the toxins and pollutants that are in, you know, farmed fish, mm. I really think of fish as something I, I don't eat all that often and I really mm. prioritize quality. So I want it to be wild. But I really like salmon. Um, I do enjoy tuna on occasion. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't. I try to just avoid the predatory fish, but we'll have shrimp. My kids like shrimp. My kids are really big carnivores. I mean, they preferentially the amount of meat that we cook every week is just astronomical. And so focus on protein. And then for me, what's really important is I really like salad. I went through a period of time after a long hospitalization in 2019, I couldn't eat vegetables for probably nine months at all. And they had to be cooked. So I try to eat salad, at least like a big salad, at least once a day. Um, so vegetables are really important for me. That's just what makes my body feel good. And when I have everything really well balanced, I don't have cravings. I would say my one vice right now is I love salted macadamia nuts. There's some yeah. of salt and the nut. And so I, I will measure out a quarter cup and I really will stick to that. Yep. And like maybe a piece of really good quality dark chocolate but i try not to do that all that often because it's so easy as you know that's mm. so easy um yeah. so, so especially
0: easy. if you don't prioritize the good food up front yeah interesting with the salad the non-starchy green veggies will mm-hmm. definitely give you the the nutrients the magnesium yeah. the potassium that we all struggle to get that they contain fiber and bulk and water and from a satiety point of view, are really good. They don't provide a lot of calories, but yeah. they just sort of supplement the yeah. the protein, so you're more full and satiated. And yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, so, in terms of thyroid, I know that's a, a, a massive rabbit hole that a lot of people in the group wanted to know. Um, from my point of view, there's sort of a interplay between obesity and your thyroid, and if you've got a if you're holding a lot of weight. Basically, your, your metabolism tries to ramp up to burn off that weight. Um, but if, as you drop your weight, your, your thyroid will um, reduce function and because you, you don't need to burn off as much weight. Um, and, and your meta- metabolism, as you lose weight, does actually slow. And a lot of people find they need less thyroid meds. And it's generally a good, good news story. Just as you lose weight, you, you need less thyroid stimulation. But how much has you know which one goes first the, the dysfunctional thyroid or, or the obesity and it's sort of a chicken and the egg scenario in some ways and a lot of people like to blame their thyroid for their obesity but in some ways it's the other way around and i don't know it's a deep rabbit hole to unpack and lots yeah. of controversy out there but um, uh, i be interested in your thoughts
2: yeah i mean i i think i think for women especially women over the age of 35 it's been my experience that the changes in sex hormones start to mitigate and exacerbate thyroid issues. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, progesterone and, and thyroid hormone really do fit together. You know, in a terms of are very complementary of one another. And one of the first things that starts to happen is women are heading into perimenopause. So, like late 30s, early 40s, you're there. Uh, you have less progesterone because we're born with a finite amount of eggs. We're not like men, where we're reproducing sperm every three days. And so one of the first things that starts to happen is we have this relative estrogen dominance because we have less circulating progesterone because our eggs are as old as we are. Mm. So this is when I start to see this push pull. I think it's multifactorial. I think there are Mm. multiple things that happen. I think, um, you know, as women are getting older, it's the piece of, um, you know, the mentality of I have to exercise harder Mm. raises cortisol which can stress the adrenals and the adrenals become this backup system for progesterone production when the ovaries are starting to kind of falter and and I I hate to use the word wither, but they're just Mm. not as vibrant as they were at 25. And so we, we have this, that's one avenue that things go down. I think the inflammatory nature of our diets, also the inflammatory pathway will drive some thyroid stress, but also create inflammation in the body and inflammation. I think I also think about, you know, if you've got this relative relative estrogen dominance and you've got this, you know, um, know, undervalued progesterone levels as we're getting closer and closer to to menopause, I I think this all, I always think about our sex hormones, our adrenals, and our thyroid as a three-legged stool. And if one leg is loose or not as Mm. strong, it impacts all of them. You know, I think about there's so many things that impact healthy thyroid function, Mm -hmm. gut health, food sensitivities, um, nutrient deficiencies. Mm. I talk a lot about this. Yeah, I'd
0: love you to talk more about the the foods and nutrients to Mm -hmm. stimulate your thyroid function.
2: Yeah, so I I think about iron and selenium and iodine. Iodine, I know, is very controversial. I actually just interviewed um, Dr. Alan Christensen, who feels that the reason why there's so much thyroid disease is from the sources of iodine that we're getting through our personal care products and food and our environment. So I still talk about iodine, although I'm not 100%. Sorry. This is the problem of having like an iMac. Everything is coordinated. Sometimes the calls pop up. But I start thinking about nutrient deficiencies. I think about toxins that we're exposed to that can impact and offset thyroid receptors, heavy metals. And, and this mm-hmm. is not woo-woo. Um, I personally, in my early 40s, Uh, you know, I, I've never had a mercury amalgam, but my mom, when she was pregnant Mm -hmm. with me, um, had a mouthful of mercury fillings because that's just what people did in the Mm fifties, they filled their mouths with mercury. And so when I was in my forties and they actually were trying to figure out why my thyroid went south, the first thing they said was your mercury levels are ridiculously high. We think it's related Mm -hmm. to these three factors, one of them being your mom's exposure, to mercury so when we think about what impacts thyroid function it's the entire endocrine system and then all mm. the other things that I noted so it really requires a bit of savvy unpacking now what I can tell you is the bulk of people that develop thyroid issues are related to autoimmune issues like Hashimoto's mm. so 80 to 85 percent of people who develop uh, an underactive thyroid it's related to an autoimmune reaction in the body this is no surprise given the mm. um you know Gut health issues that are mm. rampant between stress and poor quality sleep and our poor quality of food and you know fluctuating yo-yo dieting all these things that can put the stressor so um, it is a rabbit hole. I, I could mm. talk very
0: about very deep rabbit hole. Um,
2: I could literally <laughs> talk about probably each one of those things. But is it at all uncommon for women to become hypothyroid in their forties? Absolutely not. Do I see it grossly undertreated? Yes largely because people aren't doing the right tests and the right tests are more than one or two. So if someone's listening Mm -hmm. and saying, how do I figure out what what the right tests are? Um, It generally involves more than just thyroid function tests. It's looking at iron, it's looking at heavy metals, um, looking at those sex hormones, which I know is not super sexy. There are a lot of people who want to dig their head in the sand and say, no, it's not possible. I can't possibly have low progesterone and then ultimately low estradiol and the low testosterone and how all those things, I always say the endocrine system, which is our mm. hormone system in our body, is so interlaced and intertwined with one another that one hormone begets another hormone, um, mm. meaning that it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's there's no way that, uh, you know, you're not gonna have an imbalance in thyroid hormone that isn't gonna have a downward effect elsewhere in your body. And, and for anyone to think it's just, you just need thyroid replacement, it's not that mm. easy. You yeah, um, totally. totally can't
0: just replace one hormone no. in your body to manage the symptom because it's no. such a complex system. So no. beyond diving into deep nutritional testing and trying to work out all the moving parts, what are the, the most common solutions that, that people can do to manage those symptoms or even mitigate preemptively those no. those situations?
2: Are we talking specifically about thyroid
0: Ah, uh, generally about thyroid, but uh, what what are the big levers? I suppose you just go back to good sleep, working out, yes. being strong, good nutrition, and that's what everybody can do potentially. Yeah.
2: Well, and I think, I think I wish I knew now. I wish I knew 20 years ago or even 10 years ago what I know now because I remember in my 30s taking care of women in their 40s and 50s who so I thought were crazy. They're not crazy. It's that no one talks them about what starts happening to their bodies until they slap a bunch of hormones on. But preemptively, the things I think about that I wish I had known was really good quality sleep, seven, eight hours a night of high quality sleep, cold, dark room. If you're on electronics, like right now I'm sitting, you know, bathed in blue light. We both are. um, We know that it has this, you know, untoward effect on melatonin secretion in our brains mm. for you is good. Cause you're starting your day for me, mm. not quite as good, but I will put <laughs> the lockers on because we want to mitigate the disruption of melatonin secretion. We want our bodies, you know, we have these clocks um, throughout our body that are responsible mm. melatonin. It's not just a sleep hormone. Uh, there's so much more to it than that. So high quality sleep, plenty of it, seven, eight hours a night's sleep. I know everyone wants to stay up late when their kids go to bed, when they're younger, I get it. Um, now my kids stay up later than me, which is a whole separate issue.
0: Yeah, totally. I used to put the the kids to bed, but now I go to bed at the same time and they stay up late. But anyway.
2: Oh, yeah. They they just wait us out. Um, stress management. And this is more than just saying I, I practice stress management. We were talking about the Apollo Neuro mm. and meditation. Uh, really important that we're actively, proactively thinking about sleep and stress management. When we get up in the morning, exposure to light in the morning, also mm. very important um, and, and, you know, balancing stress means not over exercising. And so this is the common misnomer is that women, our mentality is, I need to exercise harder to mm. lose weight. So, you know, they won't just do two hours of cardio. They're going to do three. Mm. Uh, they're going to stay on that treadmill. They're going to, I see women, they look haggard in my neighborhood that I know yeah. were about the same age or they're around my age.
1: Yeah. I
2: think the elevated cortisol from that much stress on their body at that point in time is not a good thing. So, you know, lifting- and then your
0: body craves all those comfort foods because it's yeah. the metabolism is just going to give me more energy because you put me through all that pain. And that's why it just punctuated resistance training that doesn't drive you a rebound binge yeah. is probably a better approach. And gentle walking is, is a really nice approach as well.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say my, my trifecta is strength training, I walk a lot, um, mm. so how do you get in like you know, 17,000 steps a day? And I was mm. like, well, I walk, I have two dogs and during COVID, one of the few things I could do was walk. I couldn't go to the that's gym. So I walk quite a bit and I enjoy walking outside. And then I do, um, I do a lot of core work. So I do a, a exercise called solid core, yep. it's very intense. It's like Pilates on steroids. And that's just what doesn't overtax my body in any capacity, I enjoy all these things. And really checking in with yourself and, and noting you know when you exercise do you feel like you have more energy or less mm. what i find is women admit to themselves or men for that matter that they feel depleted after exercising mm. a sign that you either didn't fuel your body properly or you're over exercising so mm. definitely the exercise piece and the nutrition piece is really critical i tell people it all starts with food people think because in their 20s and 30s they got away with eating garbage diets that they can continue doing that I hate yep. to close the bubble. I I tell you, in middle age, it changes. You can't, you can't just eat anything. And so, um, not only is it, you know, prioritizing protein, as I know you talk about quite mm. a bit, but it's also removing inflammatory foods. Like I stopped eating gluten nine years ago. I stopped mm. eating dairy three years ago. I'm very, I'm mm. largely grain free, except for some ancient grains, and very occasionally. But I think it, it's being honest with yourself about what serves you or no longer mm. serves you. For me. Um, when I pulled out dairy, it was like the the five pounds I couldn't seem to get rid of during wow. menopause, I lost just from you know the rare raw cheese I was eating and maybe occasionally some um some yogurt. So I, I think that you'd have to get really honest with yourself. And for me, I think it's more about how do I feel? Like that's always the check-in point. How mm. do I feel when I make these choices? Because if I feel good, it mm. does feel like a hardship. And that's mm. the point that I think a lot of people have to get to because the the thought of, pulling things out of their diet is, is frightening because they're so emotionally tied or connected to the foods that they're eating or it, you know, they eat for pleasure, which food mm-hmm. is to be pleasurable. But if you're eating um, for emotional reasons associated with the food as well, you have to find other ways to self soothe. And, and, you know, sometimes with clients I'll tell them, okay, go take a walk, um, go brush your teeth. You know, mm-hmm. finally, I was like when you feel a craving come on that, you know, is not legitimate because you've already had a good dinner. You had a good lunch Um, You know, you slept really well. The question is, you know, where are you in your cycle? If you're not cycling anymore, then you need a distraction. And, you know, maybe it's the time to do something else. You you know, you say to yourself, I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes. And I bet by the time that timer goes off, I'm not going to be thinking about that food anymore. Mm. A lot lot of of
0: people try to fill that dopamine hole that isn't satisfied in other parts of their life with their relationships or their work with food, and just have to reorientate that uh, the dopamine hit. Um, just, just quickly, I know you're on social media a lot potentially as you know as an influencer and out there with a podcast and Facebook groups. How do you manage the overwhelm from uh, social media and and just making sure you don't get caught up in that to the point that it interrupts your sleep and your dopamine cycles and and everything else? That's uh, an issue a lot of people face these days
2: yeah that's a great question i mean for full transparency i have a team so i pay a team to be where i cannot be 24 7. Mm. Uh, i have very firm boundaries about when i check in on social media i actually find twitter to be the most enjoyable platform that i'm on but i have to be careful because i can be in a rabbit hole where i'm just you know wanting to be on there and and then i'm like okay i need to check myself this is not healthy Mm. So I think it really involves like I have team members that that make it look like I'm everywhere. Um, although when I say I'm really somewhere, if you're sending me messages on Instagram, it really is me responding. DMs, <laughs> not my team. Um, but I think it's I just I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I'm the I'm the nerdy person that carries a book everywhere I go. So if I so for example today I uh, got my hair colored, and so. Uh, the woman who does my hair knows I'm going to come with a book because I always tell her I need to take an hour away from social media and off my phone. So it's all just sit there mm-hmm. and read reading. I'm like, I don't care if I just get through a chapter. But you know, really setting firm boundaries. And then mm-hmm. the other thing is, I kind of effectively shut my brain off at night. So I'm not worried about what's going on social media. I don't like to be controversial. I don't like to argue um, mm-hmm. not that I don't disagree. And it's not that I don't. Uh, desire intellectual in-course uh, uh, interaction, but as a rule, like, I don't use my social media platform as one to be divisive. It's meant to be mm. inspiring, educational, and innovative, and so um, much much like your voice on social media mm. is very positive, so I think that definitely saves me from drama. Like, I have mm. colleagues that like being controversial and like stirring the pot, and I'm like, I don't have the bandwidth for that. <laughs> you know, I know myself well enough to know, like, that's not going to serve me well. So much to your yeah. point about, you know, feeling like you're you're tethered to something on social media. There's very little that I feel I can't sit and wait. Um, mm. I try to I try to interact with people and treat them the way that I I try to kind of ensure that I'm treating people the way I want to be treated. So, for example, I have a, a a private Facebook group, and there was someone in there who. I think was coming from a good place but we were talking about a researcher and this researcher is vegetarian and this individual was frustrated that this individual was putting out all this research but was vegetarian because it was giving a slant and I said well you know I I think it's okay to disagree Mm -hmm. not everyone is going to uh, align with my philosophies on animal protein and I said I frankly don't think I would feel or look the way that I do at my age if I were only eating plant-based protein, but I'm not going to judge people that choose. to. Mm. Um, and this person was just, she was going to die on that sword. And I just, I just I told my team, I said, I'm going to make the last response and then we're shutting the comments down because it's not, mm. it's, it's no, it's no longer helpful. It's now becoming argumentative. And yeah. I said, if you feel that, feel that strongly, send a letter to the the person who wrote the book and let them know. I mean, mm. You know, not sure if they'll ever read it, but maybe you'll feel better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy world out there. And um, you can't correct everybody who you think is wrong on Facebook. Right. And, you just go insane trying to do that. And I find some sometimes they conflicts can be teaching opportunities just to yeah. show here's another option have you thought of this and and guide people through it so um what are you excited about for the future you've got a book coming out on uh, women's hormones and intermittent uh, fasting ironically so you, you're uh, mentioning before
2: yeah no so um right now we are Next week, we are heading into our first of two moves. Um, We've been building a house since last September, and it's taken a heck of a lot longer than we thought. So we are moving from one rental to another. We sold our house in Washington, D.C. in one day and thought we would just be in this rental for six months. And now we're on nine months um, and continuing on. So the short term, two more moves. uh, And then uh, the book will be coming out. It's on women and intermittent fasting will be coming out in early 2022, which is exciting I would say beyond that, I'm excited to actually be doing in-person talks. Like I just had my first one in Montana about two weeks ago, and my like speaker stuff is starting to really fill up. I was telling my husband I'm getting a little nervous because there's a lot yeah. of back-to-back. Like we may be doing a lot of traveling wow. to be able to attend all these events, but I'm excited to be able to be back in person. Excited to be back in front of an audience. Something I really genuinely love and feel yeah. very passionate about. And then also. um, Really growing the podcast, and um, I feel really fortunate to have been able to connect with amazing people like yourself mm. this year. To feel inspired to reach out and say, "Hey, I love this really fresh take on fasting. I think this mm. is going to change things for a lot of people." Um, yes. and I definitely want to make sure people can connect with you and Thank and you. be able to to share your the great work you're doing. So I would say, you know, growing the podcast, continuing to do that. That's been I've been surprised at how much I've enjoyed that. Like I actually yeah. enjoy. Interviewing people more than I could have ever imagined, especially as an introvert and, you know, just having the ability to have a platform to share really great information and to do it in a way much like you do where it's designed to be really helpful and um, positive and uplifting because there's plenty of divisiveness that's out there. Um, I just don't want to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's definitely been a wonderful way just to meet people and get to chat to people and develop relationships with people. And I love podcasts. I'm driving all the time and in the gym, I'm listening to podcasts. So it's just a great way to take in information that most people these days don't want to sit down and read the latest 2000 word blog posts, They'd rather absorb it through these conversations. Yeah. So thank you. This has been fantastic. And you've, um, absolutely nailed all the topics that people wanted us to cover so thank you so much for your time and um look forward Hope hope the move goes really well and uh, look forward to the continued friendship
1: absolutely thank you so much it's been a pleasure
0: thanks so much cynthia